Man, oh, well, it's so good to see everybody here today. Um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about Nights of Revival uh, because we have breaking news. Everybody say, yeah. Uh, uh, we will be joined by Upper Room Worship uh, for that weekend. So it's going to be an incredible time. So you're going to want to register, okay? It, it's it's going to be a very, very rich time, all right? It's going to be amazing. Now, uh, we are right on the front end of launching a new series of talks uh, that is lining up with the church calendar uh, that is called the season of Advent. And here's what's powerful about Advent is this, is that it is not just us spending time in reflection that Jesus came. It is also us positioning ourselves in expectation for his second coming. And that's really what these next few weeks are going to be. It's going to be us reflecting on the power and the hope and the joy and the love of what Jesus brought to us and stirring our faith to be able to believe that there's even more that we could ask, hope, or imagine that is coming with his second coming. All right? Now, I'm actually not going to be bringing this word to you today. Uh, we, have a, we have a guest speaker in the house who is a family member of the house. He is the man who has actually done almost every single job in this church, from kids ministry to youth to college to janitorial services to uh, setting up to being Emily Weibel's uh, personal assistant, which if you don't know who Emily is, she is like the CEO of our church. She runs everything. She is the boss. When she says jump, we say how high. Yes. Yes, ma'am. When she walks in, we're like, what should we do? What are our orders? And the person who is right behind her making all that dream work is Mr. Andrew Weibel. And Andrew, come on out here, bro. Oh, I love you. Man, what an intro. Uh, I, I'm happy to play second fiddle to Emily. She is the brains and the beauty of our relationship. So I don't know what that makes me. Um, other than the one that feels confident being on stage. So here I am. Uh, you'd probably much rather hear from her. But hey, like Lindsay said, there are so many uh, unspoken rules about Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Since she made all of you early Christmas celebrators feel bad, I've been watching Christmas movies for like three weeks, okay? So <clears throat> you can boo me if you wish. I have a feeling the online audience is watching a Christmas movie right now. Um, so... We're with you, you know. I hope I'm, you know, equal to Elf today. Um, hey, but like JD said, I'm our college pastor here, and I'm going. I'm trying to rival Moses for most job titles held. Uh, I think I need about three more in order to catch up, but I'm working on it. Um, and man, I love Christmas season. Walking into Christmas trees, we set up our Christmas tree last night. It's just there's something special about Christmas season, about traditions like breaking the, the Thanksgiving barrier too early and watching movies, uh, having Christmas parties. Emily and I love throwing Christmas parties. Like you heard on the announcement video, we're throwing a Christmas gala, not just the two of us, but our whole staff. For all people volunteering, you want to be there. Hey, there's still like you could serve at our North Campus if you've never served before. Drive up north, serve at our North Campus, and then come on Friday to our Christmas gala. It is going to be a ton of fun, and we really want to celebrate those of you uh, who have given your life to this church. But there's just something special about traditions, something special about making memories and doing them over and over again. And, and like J.D. said, we're entering into Advent, and I love Advent because not only is it a, a tradition within our house, 
of us saying, hey, we're going to take the month leading up to the arrival of Jesus to say, hey, we're expectant for what, for what you're doing, for, for the way that you've come in the past, and looking forward to you coming again. But this is a tradition that the church celebrates all over the world. And it's so fun when we as Antioch Austin, just a little piece of God's great story, gets to join with the whole church at large across the world in celebrating the same things. And today we're leaning into the word hope. That with the arrival of Jesus came hope. Will you guys pray with me today? Jesus, thank you so much that you are here with us, that you are the one who brings hope. And Jesus, we thank you that we get to join with millions of other believers uh, today and this weekend, celebrating that you are our living hope, like we sang earlier, celebrating that when you came to this earth, there's something that came alive in the people that believe in you. And, and there's something that comes alive in us just because you came. And Jesus, I pray that Today, as we shake off the, uh, the turkey sleep and, and jump into church today, Lord, would we see from your word how you are alive in hope with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, well, speaking of hope, how many of us put our hope in things that let us down on a regular basis? I mean, I know for me, wow, thank you. Most of the room, thank you. Uh, the last time I asked that question, like two people raised their hand, and I was like, y'all, the rest of y'all are lying, right? We all do this all the time. We put our hope in something or someone, and it, it just ends up letting us down. Well, for me, this happened in a very real way when I was in college. You see, growing up, I was a, an above-par athlete. I won't say I was great, but I was better than some, right? I was, I was an athlete. In sixth grade, I won state in track and soccer, a dual-sport state champion. I peaked when I was 12, so if there's any 13-year-olds in the room, sorry about it. You know, look back at last year. It was a great year. I loved sixth grade, man. It was great. But I peaked in sixth grade, and in high school, my soccer team had a couple chances to win state. We made it right to the line a couple different times, but could never quite just gain that you know, ultimate prize of being a, a winner again, a champion again. And I, I unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to play college sports, so my college sport was called intramurals, right? I, I went into college, and I, I knew that I had lost my chance to be a champion in high school, but I was going to set my hopes on one last place of glory, and that was the intramural champion t-shirt. Now, for those of you who went to college, or maybe you're in college right now, the intramurals are like rec sports for college students, and, and at the school I went to, anytime you won a division of a sport, you were given a shirt that said, I am champ intramural champion, and you could wear it around campus, and you would see it, and, and people would look at you like, oh, wonder what he won in. There's some of the guys that you're like, you must have won that in like a knitting competition. Like, I, I don't know how you got that t-shirt, but I set my hope on, I am going to have one more chance at athletic dominance and becoming an intramural champion. And so I signed up for every sport I could. I played dodgeball from the first day of school. I, I played soccer, all volleyball, sand volleyball, football. I did it all because I just wanted my hope set on the fact that I would be an intramural champion. But semester after semester, sport after sport, year after year, I kept falling short. I made it to the semifinals in dodgeball and lost. I made it to the soccer semifinals. That was my sport growing up a couple times and lost. And I just kept seeing this pattern of hope crushed. Hope crushed. Another guy in an intramural t-shirt. Man. And I set my hope my last semester on my flag football team. 
You see, we decided we're going to recruit a little heavy this year. So we started, there was like a criteria. If you did not play at least varsity football, you didn't make the team, all right? So we were like, this, this team, I was the only person that hadn't played football growing up on my team, um, and, and we were set on winning the championship. This is my last semester at Baylor. So we go into the season, we go undefeated through the season, win the first two rounds of playoffs, and we make it to the finals. It was a cold November night, and we make it to the finals, and, and my heart is going fast. My hope has arrived right? It is my time to take home that intramural champion shirt and wear it until I'm in my 50s, right? I'm going to cherish this thing as a time to look back and say, I didn't peak when I was 12. I peaked when I was 21, right? I'm like, that, that is what I'm going for. So I, I go in and, and our team, we start off a little slow. Now, what you need to know is, is because I didn't play football, but I'm, I'm a big guy, I became our defensive lineman, my whole goal was just to be as big as I could. I would run up and yell at people and throw my hands in the air, block passes. And, and so I'm coming out, and I'm going all out. I, I mean, this is my last chance. Like, I graduate three weeks after this game, so I'm going all out. I'm, like, muddy after the first play, sweating my, like, I'm going all in. Through the first quarter, we're, we're doing terrible. I'm like, come on, guys, like, trying to motivate people. Second quarter, I get a safety, which if you don't know what a safety is, it's where you sack the team in their own end zone, so we get two points. I'm like playing my heart out. We get into the third quarter, we're losing 14 to two. I'm the only player, I'm playing defense, and I'm the only player who's gotten points on our team. And I'm like, guys, we've got to play harder. We've got to have a chance. We, the clock starts ticking down, and, and the other team starts kind of just running the clock down. So in my head, I'm like, okay, there's one choice. I have to get another safety, so we get points and the ball. So I line up on, on in front of the, the linemen, and they're about to snap it, and I take off around the edge. Again, my mind is set on, my hope is wearing that intramural championship shirt during finals week this year. Like, I'm going to wear it every day. I'm probably going to wash it once a week. Like, this is my hope. And I run, and right as I get to the quarterback, I dive. I'm like, you know what? I could probably get from me to the front row with, like, one step. So I'm just like, I dive. I lay out simultaneously he throws the ball, I see it go over my head, and as I reach, I catch my finger on the quarterback's hip. I don't know it at the time, but I snap my lowest digit in my finger. I come up, shake in my hand, I turn around, and the captain of our team looks at me, and he goes, Weibel, are you really going to quit like that? I was like, whoa, 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 I'm not quitting. I just, my finger hurts. So we finish the game, time goes on, we end up losing 14-2, to two. still Proud of the fact, thank you for the awe, the sentiment. Proud of the fact that I got the only points in the game. But then I had to remember my lost hope by wearing a finger brace for nine weeks. All through Christmas break and skiing and all of that, I just had to wear this brace and my hope was totally crushed. I had put my hope, built it up in being an intramural champion. And for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever I had to wear the cast for, I was reminded every day, your hope has failed. You did not get there. On top of that, I was telling this story to, to one of my co-leaders when I moved to Austin, Mickey Oaks. I don't know if she's in here today, but I was telling her this story, and at the time, she was vice president of intramural sports at UT, and uh, that made it hurt a little bit more, telling her this story, but she said, hey, you know what? We've got a storeroom with all of the previous intramural championship shirts. What if I sneak you one? So I meant to bring it today. I'm bummed I left it at home, but I now have a UT intramural championship shirt from 2019 to forever be a poser 
and forever be reminded that I shouldn't put my hope in intramural sports. Gosh, but, you know, it's a light example, but how often do we do this? We put our hope in some lofty thing that, man, if this could just be accomplished, if I could just see this one thing happen, if this one person would just come through, then I would be okay. Think about it, we get lonely and we're like, man, if that one, I just hope that one person would notice me. Or, or you know, your kids start to fight and argue more over Thanksgiving breaks. Maybe this hits home for some of you and you're like, I just hope for one day that my kids like each other. Like, that's all I hope for. One day that my kids like each other and I'll be able to survive until Christmas, right? Or, or maybe to get a little deeper, some of you are waking up day after day after day with anxiety and you're saying, I just hope for one day where I feel like my old self, where I feel like I used to feel before fill in the blank happened. That we all set our hopes on things in front of us. And I, I want to propose to you that we view hope as a last-ditch effort. I've got a, a prop here that I think a lot of us view hope as this life vest. That when, when life gets tough, when things get heavy, when life gets challenging, when, when, when life starts to bear down on us, we view it as a floaty. That hope is this thing that I'm just going to throw it on. Oh, I hope that I'll be okay. Right? That's what you do with the life vest. When when all things go wrong, when the boat capsizes, when the airplane stewardess tells you we're going down, you reach for the life vest. Because somehow when a 40,000-ton airplane hits the water, this little orange thing is going to save you, right? That's what we do with hope. Family's tough, right? Oh, oh I, just, I hope that Aunt so-and-so doesn't say something insensitive at Thanksgiving again this year, right? Work gets challenging. Oh, I Hope, oh, I can't take this thing off. Where it gets challenging, I just hope my boss sees that I need a little help on this project. Right? Hope becomes this life vest that we throw on of, oh, if this circumstance would just change, then I could take the life vest back off and I'm all right. I could just put it back to the side and I'm going to be okay. It's, it's a feel-good fix. It's an escape route for us. That's how we view hope. And honestly, I don't think it's our fault. I think we've been conditioned to think this way. How often do we hear this phrase, I hope the Cowboys win on Thanksgiving this year? Stepping on some toes, right? I hope this breakthrough happens. I hope that something changes, that hope is everywhere. And we use this word without even thinking twice about it, that I hope this, we hope that. But when I read the word of God, when I follow Jesus and I start to look in his life manual here and we see the word hope everywhere, I just have a hard time thinking that this talks about hope as this. I have a hard time reasoning with that. And if you stick around Antioch for a while or even just a couple weeks, you'll know that when we feel these tensions in life of, of the world says something is one way and the word says something is another way, then we resolve where we land in the word of God. And today I want to jump into some scripture from 1 Peter 1 together. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up or your phone, follow along there. I tell our college students and our youth students this all the time. We've got a big screen in case you want to look up there, but that screen won't be in your living room when you need the Bible, all right? So learn how to use your paper Bible. I'm a big paper Bible guy. Um, We're going to be reading from 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, and you can follow along. 
says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I relate to that right now. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter starts to paint this picture that Hope isn't just a life vest. It's not just this floaty that we put on. In fact, he calls it living hope. We sang that song earlier, and I think some of us think it's actually a song and not scripture, that that phrase, living hope, is straight out of the word of God. That Peter's starting to contrast, we've put our hope in a situation that's not alive, and instead we need our hope in something that is alive, and his name is Jesus. He starts to paint this picture that Jesus is our living hope because we have a future with him that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, waiting for us in heaven. He's starting to show us that it's not just a fail-safe or our fallback, but it's, it's something bigger than that. It's a confident trust in Jesus. It's a belief that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and he will be who he has said he will be, and that's what he starts to paint hope as. And today I want to look at a character in the Bible who lived this out. And we're not going to read this whole story, but we're going to look at a character in the story of Esther. And actually the last time I was preaching on this stage, I got to preach about this character. His name is Mordecai. And if you've never read the book of Esther and you think the Bible is boring, I'm telling you, read the book of Esther and you'll have a different opinion. It's got romance, loyalty, plots against a king, plots against different people groups. I mean, it has like everything a good drama has. And there are so many characters that we could talk about, but I'm going to hit on two. One is Esther, the namesake of the book. The other is Mordecai, her uncle. And here's, here's what you need to know about these two people. Esther is Mordecai's niece, but was raised basically as his daughter. And Esther, through a series of events, has become the queen. She has gone and, and married the king and is now the second most powerful person in the kingdom next to the king. Mordecai, on the other hand, has been working in the king's service, working his temple grounds, working his, his palace grounds for years. And we're going to jump into a story with a man that we'll call the vice president. His name is Haman. But as we jump into this story, Mordecai is working in the, in the palace courts and and Haman walks by, and being a powerful man, the vice president in the kingdom, he decides, you know what? I think every time I walk by this court, I want people to bow down to me. I want to be praised and worshipped for how great I am, the second in command. So he makes a decree, everyone, as I walk through here, you must bow down before me. Now Mordecai, what you need to know about him is he was a Jew. He was a person of faith. He was one who followed God. His people were God's 
people. And so he finds himself in a pretty desperate situation. He's now broken the command of the second most powerful man in the kingdom. And we're going to pick it up in Esther chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, when Haman, that's the man we're calling the vice president here, when he saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, he tells him he's a Jew, they tell him he's a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom. He finds himself in a pretty hopeless situation. He stands up for his faith, and now not only is he having to pay the price, but all of his friends and relatives are as well. They're having to pay the price of his respect for his faith. You see, his circumstances didn't have too much hope in them. I don't know, maybe you feel like the same scenario, that you feel like you're in a a lose-lose. I can't bow down because then I'm compromising who I am, but if I don't bow down, then I'm compromising who all of these people are. He found himself in a hopeless situation, but the good thing for Mordecai is he had the life vest of all life vests, right? He was on the seat on the plane that didn't just have the inflatable life vest, but also had the boat next to it, right? He's, he's the guy that had the absolute best get-out-of-jail card. He was safe because he had speed dial to the queen, right? He had, he had Esther on speed dial. All he had to do was make one call, and he was going to be all right. But Mordecai teaches us something about hope, and I think we can learn so much from his actions. In Esther 4, we're not going to read it, but I'll summarize. Instead of calling his niece, he calls a prayer rally, which I think is so admirable that in the face of this pressure of not only a murder plot against his own life, but his family and friends and his community, instead of running to this, this life vest, he says, no, 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 we need to run to our knees. In fact, Esther never even hears of the plot until she hears of her uncle and his friends weeping in the street in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is not the sermon I'm preaching today, but how cool would it be if people heard about our weariness, our pain, our beef we have with other people, our anxiety in a prayer meeting and not on social media? That's what happened here. He didn't run to the public and say, let's attack the palace. He says, no, we need to get on our knees. He calls a prayer rally. He starts to show us that He's got a right picture of hope. He's got a right picture of what hope is, that it's not this cheap get-out-of-jail card that I'm going to just call Esther, throw my floaty on, and I'm all good. I'll make it out. I don't know about all the rest of my people, but I know I'll make it out. No, he says, no, I've got to fall on my knees. He shows that hope isn't in people or circumstance, but it's in his trust of the character of God. You see, Mordecai would have known that for Hundreds of years, there had been this cycle of the people of God walking away from him and him saying, no, I want to be faithful to you and rescuing them and pursuing them. So he's able to say, you know what? I don't know what's going to come, but my hope is in Jesus. It's in God being who he says he is. So cool. They do go on, Esther and Mordecai do go on to make a plan after he's weeping in the street with his friends and Esther is able to find a way to save the Jews, and I won't go into all of that because today we're focusing on the way that Mordecai leaned into hope, but if that wasn't enough, 
if one life-threatening, hopeless situation wasn't enough, Haman actually goes on and decides, you know what? I don't care what the, what's going to go on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill Mordecai in public, in front of everyone. Everyone's going to know. So he goes on to make this like torture development that he's going to kill him on. It's a crazy story. You really should read it. But he goes on and he's, so there's a second plot for his life. Now again, I don't know about you. I would run to Esther so fast. Be like, life best, help me, Esther. Not only is he going to kill your aunt, he's killing me too, right? Not only is he going to kill your cousins, he's coming for me. I'm the reason he's doing this. I would have totally bailed. But Mordecai doesn't do that. In fact, I love, he leans in in prayer again, and I love what happens. Not only does Esther not save him this time, but God intervenes in a miraculous way. The king is asleep one night, and he wakes up in a panic, wakes up in the middle of his sleep, can't go back to sleep, so he calls his record keeper, you know what all of us do when we can't sleep, record keeper, come, and he remembers Hey, someone saved my life. Again, we've skipped a lot of details here, but he remembers a good deed that Mordecai had done previously in his life. And he says, did we ever celebrate that man? Did we ever do anything for him? Fast forward in the story, and actually Mordecai gets paraded through the streets as a hero, that his hopelessness turns into triumph as he's walking through the streets, he actually gets promoted to Haman's position, vice president of the whole land. And the cool thing about it is it's not because he ran to his person of power. It's not because he ran to someone and said, I need a cheap out. I need, I need a way to get through. Hey, can you help me just through this one thing? No, he got on his knees before the Lord. And the Lord didn't even need to use anyone. He woke the king up in his sleep. How beautiful is that? He trusted that God would be faithful, and he was. He trusted that God would be faithful to his people. You see, when we say living hope in 1 Peter 1, what he's saying is that God is who he says he is, and he's alive in that. He still will be faithful. It's a declaration that he's more faithful than my fears. I'm afraid of what might happen, but he's more faithful. He's more powerful than my circumstances. There's some really crazy stuff going on right now. There's a murder plot against my people, right? There's a, there's a situation I can't control in my life, but it's saying, you know, he's, he's bigger than that. He's more consistent than I am. We're going to keep reading in 1 Peter 1, jumping down a few verses in verse 13. If you're there in your Bible, you can read along. If not, you can see on the screen. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So my question to us is what we started with then is, then what do we set our hope in? If we're told to set our hope on something, how do we have hope? How do we set our hope on this deal? Well, we say our hope is fully in our relationship with Jesus and Him being faithful You see, if we view hope as this life vest, I think that this odd-shaped curtain over here is more what Jesus intended hope to look like. He intended hope to look more like this 
boat to be something you see in verse 13. It says, and preparing your minds. I love that this is in here because I think so often we view hope as this, I'm just going to snatch it when I need it. But that's not preparing your mind. Preparing your mind takes time. It takes intentionality. You know, the difference between a life vest and a boat is that a life vest, you, you can grab it at any time. It's underneath your seat on the airplane. It's, it's in the boat when you're there on, on skiing or whatever, maybe on the lake. It's, it's there for you whenever you need to throw it on. A boat takes time. It takes intentionality. See, my goal was to have this beautiful handcrafted canoe, and instead I got Moses' inflatable kayak. Um, thank you, Moses. But, the, but, but still, to the point, it took Chris Paget about 30 minutes to inflate this thing, right? It takes intentionality. When we view our hope as something that is built, we prepare our minds into hope. Then we realize that it's not just a last resort, but it's going to take time. We can't just throw it on and take it off, but we've got to construct it, mold it, put it together. You know, the other difference between viewing hope as a life vest and viewing hope as a boat is that when we're in the middle of a situation and we reach for a life vest, we throw it on, we throw on this false hope, we throw it on ourselves. We may be floating, it may keep our head above water, but we're still drowning the rest of us in our circumstances. We're still buried in the grief of what's going on. We're still buried in the emotions of that relational drama that's going on in our family. We're still, we're still 90% under in what's going on. It may keep your head above water for a time, but we were never meant to just gasp for air in life. The difference is when you're in a boat, it places you above your circumstances. You see, when we've taken time to, to build our hope, to construct a hope, a belief system in who Jesus is, when we've taken time to look and say, history says, this is who you are, Jesus, I'm putting something together. My life, my family has seen you move in this way, I'm, I'm putting something together, that once we have built a hope on who Jesus is, it sits us above the water. You see, a rightly organized, a rightly built hope on the character of Jesus allows us to move through our circumstances and not just sit in them. That, yeah, there may be a sea of grief around us, but we are able to say, Jesus, you are who you say you are. I'm going to keep moving forward in life. Right? Work is, is challenging. I don't, I, I don't know that I'm going to make it through this, this deal that I'm going through. School is so stressful right now, and finals are coming up, and, and I have this professor that's not going to cut me any slack, but Lord, I'm just going to keep being faithful because you are who you say you are. Because I have a hope that's living in who you are. That a hope that has been built on him puts us above our circumstances. And that doesn't change the fact that there may be challenging circumstances going on all around us. How often do we see Jesus and his disciples in a, in a storm on the water? But he's put them in a boat. He's put them above the water saying, hey, if you build your living hope on who I say I am, it will place you above your circumstances. You see, some of my greatest revelation of the character of Jesus has come in this season. When the chaos of life is raging all around me, but I'm able to sit up 
on the hope that Jesus is who he says he is. I'm able to look at his character in a new way and say, my circumstances look like this, but your character has not changed. That's what it means to have a living hope, a hope that is built on Jesus. Now, all of us now are wondering the question, then how do we build our hope? How do we not just rely on this throw-it-on hope, this, this last-ditch effort hope, but how do I build something of hope in my life? And I think that there's two keys that I want us to see today. Two huge things that if we can lean into these, if we can believe in these, if we can cultivate these in us, then hope won't just be a life vest, but it'll be built into a boat that Jesus intended it to be. The first thing is this, we need to know Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need to know who he is. We need to know his character, and not just head knowledge, not just saying like, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross. That's important. But we need to know him, heart knowledge, knowing who he is, knowing what he's like, knowing his character, knowing how he thinks about us, knowing how he would respond in a situation. It's a depth of knowledge, of relationship that we have to know him. So, how do we know Jesus? How do we know him in such a way that it builds up our hope, our, our, our constructed belief system that he is who he says he is? The first thing I'll say is that you should spend time with God. Now, we talk about this a lot at church, in life group, and, and on Sundays, and we talk about, man, spend time with God, do a devotional. And there's so many resources out there. Like, just go Google, like, devotional or time with God. There are thousands of great resources on what it looks like to, to worship him in the morning and meditate on his character. There's so many resources on how to read the word and read through books of the Bible or, or the whole Bible. Or There's so many great resources. But here's my challenge to you. It is so much more about who you are with than what you're doing. I think so often we get tripped up in the like, I've got to do this perfect routine. Like I've got to spend 15 minutes singing worship songs and then, and then at least 10 minutes praying and I've got to pray for like these six people at this time and then I've got to read my Bible and if I don't read at least one chapter, then I'm not reading enough. Like we get so caught up in these systems that I think if we all went around the room and said, who in here is consistently getting a devotional, that would trip most of us up. We just get in our heads about, oh, well, I'm too busy, or it has to look this way. And here's what I want to say. Spending time with Jesus is not about a system. It's not about, do you do the right devotional? Did you read the right book? Did you read the right part of the Bible? Did you listen to the right podcast on your drive into work? It's about the person of Jesus. When we say spending time with Jesus, I mean that. That's why I say that, is it's spending time with him. So when I pray, it's not about a checklist. It's about saying, I want to talk to you, Jesus. I want to speak to you in a way that you break through on the areas that I need you, but I see your character all the more. It's all about the person, and that's why we spend time with Jesus. The second thing I, I want to say about getting to know Jesus is that the second way you do it is declaring who he is. Now, if you've never done this before. Maybe that sounds weird to you to say declarations. Maybe to you that sounds like positive self-talk that you heard on a podcast, and that's not what I'm talking about. There's so much science on that. You can do your own research, but what I'm saying is saying out loud who Jesus is. 
Man, I feel sad today. Jesus, you are joy in life. Man, I feel the weight of sin. I feel the weight of what I've done and what the people around me have done. Jesus, but you have forgiven us of our sins. You've paid the price of that. It's declaring out loud, man, I feel really fearful right now. I feel terrified of how this thing's going to play out. I'm really leaning towards this, but Jesus, you haven't given me a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind, a mind that can instead build my hope, right? It's declaring who he is, and I just want to say that if you have never practiced declaring the truth of who Jesus is, it will change your life. It'll change your circumstances. It'll build up the boat while you're sitting on the boat. It'll be building your hope because that's ultimately what hope is. It's a belief that Jesus is who he says he is. It's declaring out loud, man, Jesus, you are good in the midst of my circumstances. Mordecai actually did this in the middle of the chaos. Esther's asking him, like, what are we going to do? We're not going to make it out. And his response to her is this. He says, Esther, deliverance will arise from another place. I don't know that I could have said that statement, but he had a hope built up that allowed him to declare the truth. Hey, history that I have seen, I'm going to say it out loud. Jesus has always been faithful. God has always been faithful. Do I know how he's going to come through in my circumstance? No, but he will deliver me from another place. It may not be today and it may not be tomorrow, but that's building our hope, declaring who Jesus says he is is true. And the second key is this. The first key, get to know Jesus. The second key to building our boat of hope is to set your eyes on the future. Now, this one is a a challenge for me and I think for a lot of us today because life is crazy, right? Some of you just cooked a meal for 30 people. You're like, how am I supposed to think about tomorrow? I still haven't recovered from Thursday, right? How am I supposed to think about the future? I'm still like in a turkey comatose from two days ago. Or I have all these deadlines before the end of the year. Like, how can I get past that? I have these finals. I have this drama. I have all these things that are flying up in front of me. How can I think beyond tomorrow? How can I think beyond this week? But I love that in 1 Peter, it talks about the the eternal hope. A hope that is built on the fact that Jesus is holding a place for us in heaven. Jesus has reserved a seat for those who follow him in heaven. And ultimately, when we're constructing our our base of belief in who Jesus is and and that, that he is who he says he is, that it's about telling our mind that he's faithful, but it's also about looking and saying, the troubles of this world feel very real right now. They feel very real. The, the tensions that I feel, the, the pain that my marriage has right now, the, the, the chaos between my kids, whatever your thing is that feels hopeless, it feels very real right now. But hope is to be able to look and say, but my future is waiting in heaven. And this is not a super popular thing to do. It's not a super easy thing to do, but it's saying my life is never about right now or tomorrow. It's about Jesus and my relationship with him. And if you believe in him, it says that he has eternal life waiting for you. When the Bible describes heaven, it says there's no weeping, there's no pain, there's no depression or or brokenness. So the second way that we build our, our, our hope and not fall into our life vest 
is that we say our hope is set on our future with Jesus. You see, as Christians today, the Bible actually promises that there will be suffering. We read it today, that there will be pain, there will be challenges, that I think each one of us, if we broke up into little groups, would be able to identify probably a dozen things between just a few of us, that man, these things feel hopeless. This situation feels hopeless. This feels like there is no end to it. And maybe this sounds backwards to you, but that's actually encouraging to me. Because the promise that Jesus made is that in heaven, we won't have that. He promised there will be pain, there will be suffering, but he promised on the back end, there's eternity without it. There's a place with me where there is no weeping or suffering. You may feel like life is upside down, but Jesus has never changed. And maybe today you just need to hear me say that. Maybe you don't even believe it yet. You just need to hear me say it over and over again. In your circumstances, Jesus has not changed. He is still faithful. You may not see how it's going to work out yet. You may not see the end. But he is faithful. He is kind. He is good. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to have a time of response here. And I want to I just read this psalm over us from Psalm 42. So often when I'm feeling a lot of emotions or I'm feeling a heavy season, I love to go back to the Psalms because they're just written as these beautiful songs and poems of an expression of pain and hurt and weariness. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just close your eyes if you're comfortable and I'm just going to read Psalm 42 over us. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the Hermon and the Mount of Mazar. You see, the author here is saying, I remember who you've been, God. I remind myself, I do the diligence to create a belief system based on who you have been to me in the word of God and throughout history, I choose that instead of my circumstances. You see, the message today was very practical. It's about building hope over time. But we're gonna end today by worshiping. And earlier we sang a, song called Living Hope that we sing about how he is alive and, and this whole scripture is talking about how he is our living hope. And I think for some of you today, you just need to sing that out as a declaration. Remember we talked about declaring the truth of who Jesus is. Maybe that's your response today. It's just saying, Jesus, you are my living hope. You are my living hope. You're alive in my circumstances even though I don't see you. For others of you, maybe your circumstance feels so heavy that this message just felt like it just hit you in the chest and then fell in front of you. My encouragement to you is, I don't know who you came to church with, I don't know who you're standing next to, but find somebody to pray for you. Maybe it's coming up to the front where some of our leaders and pastors are sitting and asking one of them to pray for you, but 
You were never meant to carry hopelessness alone, but in the body of Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then let's respond to this word that he is our living hope. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, that you've been faithful. Even as we start into this Advent season, we remember that you came. We remember that you weren't just this distant promise that people hoped for that never showed up, but you came. And you lived a life that was flawless, but you still paid the price for our sin, and we thank you for that. There's hope in the fact that you've paid the price for our sins. And Jesus, I just pray that as we worship you, as we sing out the truth of who you are, Lord, would our hearts believe it, maybe for the first time, that there's a hope in the midst of our circumstances. Let's worship him.